Tonight we're in Romans chapter 14. We've made it this far on our 30th study in the book of Romans. We're supposed to kind of cruise through our Wednesday night Bible studies, but you know Romans is that book where you can't get enough, so we've slowed down and just really tried to get into it. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be carefully convinced or fully convinced in his own mind. For he who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. For he who eats, eats to the Lord. For he who gives thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. Comedian Emo Phillips once used to tell a story It went like this. In a conversation, he said, with a person I recently met, I asked, are you Protestant or Catholic? My new acquaintance replied, I'm Protestant. I said, me too, what franchise? He answered, Baptist. Me too, I said, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Northern Baptist, he replied. Me too, I shouted. We continued to go back and forth. Finally, I asked, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist, Great Lakes Region, Council of 1879, or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist, Great Lakes Region, Council of 1912? He replied, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist, Great Lakes Region, Council of 1912. And I said, die, heretic. (laughs) The Church of Jesus Christ is an amazing entity. This bringing together of different people from different backgrounds all into one unit. Something that Jesus promised he would do. The church is not a club, principally. By that I mean, and some people view it as a club, you join up, you pay your dues, and you enjoy its benefits. The church is not a club in that regard. Nor is the church to be seen as just an institution. 
We don't govern people's lives. We don't write rules and regulations and impose them on people. It's not our doing. And the church is not a place. This is where most of us err. Most of us say, I'm going to the church. And we give it an address. Look, we say, at that beautiful church, as we point to some wonderful building and piece of architecture. The New Testament, we know that church is a group of people that gather together to worship God, to glorify Jesus Christ, to build one another up, and to be equipped to go out and be a witness to the world. It's a group of individuals. You are the church. This is simply the lunch sack, the building I'm speaking of. What is important is the people that is inside or that are inside of it. It's a group of people. Jesus promised in Matthew 16, Upon this rock I will build my church. It's not my church. It's not even your church. It's his church. I will build my church. Now most of us know that the Greek word for church is ekklesia. It means to be called out. A group of called out individuals. It comes from two basic words in Greek. Ek, which means out of or out from. And kaleo, to call. So those who are called out from something to be together in something else. The church. Called out individuals. The problem is where we're called out from. Everyone in this building tonight has a background, a history, a frame of reference. Some of you were raised maybe uh, without any church at all. Maybe you were raised an atheist or an agnostic and you never really gave God any kind of a thought and now here you are a believer. So you have no religious trappings, you have no traditions at all that you had hang-ups over and had to get through. It's just it's a clean, fresh start. Sometimes that's the easiest. Others have lots of religious baggage. You, raised, you were raised in a certain tradition, a certain system, a certain environment. Not only do you have a tradition or two, you have lots of them, a trunk load of them, years' worth of them. And here we are from such different backgrounds, all called out of that into this, to be with each other. That is the problem that existed in the early church, and that forms some of the problem background of this chapter. In the early church, there were Gentiles and there were Jews. Very mixed background. Gentiles came out of the framework of idolatry, Gentiles who were saved came from towns that had temples that had all sorts of demonic worship in them and all sorts of ungodly practices. On the other hand, you had Jews who were raised in a very strict, narrow, legalistic framework of the law of Moses. You put those two together and you're going to have friction, which we have here that Paul writes about in chapter 14. The problem was that there is a level of disharmony between two groups of people. Now, we can't be absolutely certain who these groups are. We can only guess, and we'll try to do that. But there's two different groups that are not getting along over certain issues. The two issues that he brings up, and we want to draw principles from them for our own lives, but the two issues he brings up here, the two points of disagreement, number one is over diet, 
And second, over days. Diet and days. That is what you can or cannot eat, not in terms of a diet to lose weight, but for spiritual reasons. I am more spiritual or less spiritual based on what I eat. And days to worship. Somebody who's really hung up on this is the Lord's day. This is the only true day to worship. That kind of bickering was going on between groups in the early church. Diet and days. These are not essentials in the Christian life, but we know by now that there are some people who go to church that make these the essentials. They judge others based on those things. And that's some of the background that Paul is writing about. You've got to picture the scene in some of these cities like Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, Colossae, etc. In the Greek and Roman world. If you were to walk through town, you wouldn't see one. You'd see several temples to many different gods and goddesses. So the average person who was raised in that environment would walk down the street, see a temple. Those temples had animal sacrifices usually. They would take an animal, kill it. They would offer the disposable parts like the carcass and some of the organs. They would burn them to the deity. Some of the choice cuts of meat that were edible they would sell to the public for consumption. When they sold those choice pieces of meat, sometimes the market, the butcher and the market where they sold the meat, was in the temple itself or adjacent to it. Now to a Gentile, even to a Gentile saved out of that background, that posed no problem. So what? Good cut of meat? You have a great filet or a hamburger right here? It's good price? Buy it, eat it. No big deal. But to the Jewish person, this was tantamount to being an idolater. And so Paul writes about this issue in Romans 14, touches on it in Romans 14, part of 15, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So it was significant a problem to write about a couple of different instances in the New Testament. And so the Jew would say, if you buy that meat that's been sacrificed to an idol and you eat it, you have joined in their enterprise, their practice, you're contributing to that decadence. That's sinful. And he would have a weak conscience and wouldn't be able to do it. And so there was a friction between these two groups. Now, once again, pause and consider that. This is the early church, right? This is the fundamental church. It has spread from Jerusalem through the Roman world. It's in Rome now. And even this early in the church... The church has problems. I want you to really let that soak in. Because there is no such thing anytime in any era as a perfect church. Please get that out of your thinking. If you think there is, you will be chasing an illusion. There's no such thing as a perfect church. How can there be if we're in it? We're imperfect. And you've heard the old saying, if you think you found a perfect church, please don't join it because you'll spoil it once you do. (laughs) Now, if you look back in the inception of the church, even in the book of Acts in Jerusalem, as many people do, here's the early church, this pristine, perfect church. And you come to Acts chapter 5, and you read about Ananias and Sapphira. This couple that was in the early church that pretended to be holy, and it was all hypocrisy, and they dropped out of church. 
quite literally. They were killed. They were not slain in the Spirit. They were slain by the Spirit. And it was a permanent thing. Hypocrisy already in the early church. And then if you move a little further in the book of Acts, you come to Acts chapter 15, and you see the great apostle Paul, the great Barnabas, this teacher and exhorter, encourager, having a fight, a disagreement, an argument that caused their friendship to split up, and they went in two separate directions in ministry. It was not over a doctrinal issue. It was not even over a moral issue. It was over a personality. Barnabas wanted to take his nephew, John Mark, Paul said, forget it. The guy flaked out on the last trip. I'm not bringing him. And they argued, and the contention was so sharp, they split up. And we find this throughout church history. We come to the church of Corinth, and Paul writes a letter to them. We'll discover that later on. And he says, there are envy and strife and divisions among you. Now, why am I bringing that up and hammering it so hard? Because... If you're the one who says, we've got to get back to the early church and be like the early church, we are there. We are as imperfect as they are. Never in church history was there perfection because imperfect people gathered together. That's the reason. Martin Luther even said, farewell to those who want an entirely pure and purified church. This is plainly wanting no church at all. You won't find it this side of heaven. Now, when we all get to heaven, class act. Purified, perfect, great. You know why? We won't have our sin nature. We won't have any of the temptations that befall us. We'll be in a pure environment. We'll be totally, absolutely redeemed. Now, I want you to look at two verses, just to get the setting. There's two groups that I mentioned. Again, I said we can't be sure who they are, but we can give them a description based on the text. Compare the first verse of chapter 14 with the first verse of chapter 15, and you get the setting. 14, verse 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. One group Paul calls weak. Chapter 15, verse 1, We then who are strong, and Paul would put himself in that category, ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. So there's two groups. Who are they? What Paul calls strong believers, and the group called the weak. Now we need to define some terms. Who are the weak that Paul speaks about? Well, first of all, they're brothers in Christ. They're not worldly people. They're not unsaved. They're brothers. For it says... Um, receive one who is weak in the faith. These are believers. He's not speaking of somebody weak morally, that is, somebody who's really struggling in an area of their life and because they're in a vulnerable spot may succumb to temptation at any given second. Nor is he speaking of those who have a weak character, who are mealy and spineless and won't stand up for what they believe. Quite the contrary. These people he calls weak stand up for what they believe. They happen to be, in Paul's view, wrong, but they should be received in love. Notice that it says, one who is weak in the faith. Weak in the faith. He didn't say weak in faith. They believe something very strongly. They have a strong faith in what they affirm. 
But they are weak in the faith. The embodiment of Christian truth is often called the faith in the New Testament. All of the glorious truths we have read so far in Romans chapter 8 that would comprise this faith, the faith, they're weak in. They don't have a grasp, say, of Romans chapter 8 verse 1, which says, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. They haven't got a grasp on that. No condemnation business. They're out condemning others because of certain practices. They don't have a grip on chapter 5, verse 1. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. They don't have a grasp on the whole issue that one can be right with God based solely upon their faith in Him, not upon their own good works. And because they don't have a grasp of those fundamental glorious truths, Paul calls them weak in the faith versus those who are strong. Their weakness lies in traditional baggage that weighs down their conscience. Traditional baggage that weighs down their conscience and that weighed down conscience judges other people who aren't like they are. So he calls them weak. You know, I mentioned that we have different backgrounds. Some of you have come from very traditional church backgrounds. Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, whatever. You have a, a, a stream, maybe a heritage passed down based on certain traditions. I do as well. And when I came to faith in Christ, I had lots of baggage. And I found something out about tradition. Tradition makes a person irrational. It is one of the hardest strongholds to break in a person's life. A person can be reasonable, rational about all things, but when it gets to their tradition, we haven't always done it that way. So? It doesn't make it right or wrong, does it? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's such a hard thing to get over. Those weak in the faith have all of this traditional baggage they've been raised with their conscience is weighed down because of it, and from that framework, they are judging other people as being right or not right, good or not good. Those are the ones he's speaking about. You might say they're oversensitive about non-essentials. Now, I'm going to use that term tonight, non-essentials versus essentials. There are certain things that we would consider the irreducible minimum, the essentials of historic Orthodox Christianity. Who Jesus is, how a person is saved and get going to heaven, etc., etc. The deity of Christ, the bodily resurrection, those are essentials. But then there are non-essentials. These people are oversensitive, the weak, to non-essential issues, and they have made them the essentials. They will divide over them. They'll argue vigorously. They'll make people miserable. They themselves are miserable. And so he puts them under that heading those who are weak in the faith. Now, the problem still exists today. Maybe not exactly, but in some cases exactly. There are people, for instance, today who want to revert back to the Old Testament law of dietary regulations and will divide over it. They've told me I'm unspiritual because I don't keep Old Testament dietary regulations. I've had one person even say, I will break fellowship with you because you don't keep Old Testament dietary law. They get hung up over 
I worship on Saturday. You worship on Sunday. And they make it a huge deal. Like they did in Rome. And these are some of the issues that Paul is writing about, in some cases, against. There are people who will not take communion unless it's unleavened bread. If it's leavened bread, it's not according to the Old Testament dictates for Passover. I can't partake of it. It's not spiritual. It has to be real wine to some people. Then there are others. If it is real wine, you're going straight to you know where. It has to be a simulation of that, just the fruit of the vine, a juice, etc. The danger, the danger, is when we raise non-essentials to the level of essentials. That's the danger. If you do that, Paul calls you weak. Not strong. Now, it's interesting because the very ones that are so legalistic think they're the strongest. Paul says, you're the weakest. When you take non-essentials and raise them to the level of essentials, that's dangerous. But it's also dangerous to take essential Christianity and relegate it to a non-essential. Oh, man, it doesn't matter. Whatever you believe in, you know, as long as you're sincere, if you believe Jesus is this or Jesus is that, whatever, it's cool. It ain't cool. There is a line of division. We are to argue vigorously over the essentials and defend the faith. Same words Paul used. Make a good fight for the faith. But then there are non-essentials. And we need to let them slide. Secondary issues like baptism. Well, what is your mode of baptism? Do you believe in immersion or affusion? Sprinkling. Does it matter? Oh, does it matter? And some will say, not only do you have to be baptized this way, but you have to be baptized this way by one of, one of our elders, or it's not a valid baptism. You are not saved. I see that as a very secondary issue. Just enough to maybe yawn over, but not really even engaging. The use of cosmetics. I don't know what some of your backgrounds are, but... I've been around people who said it is wrong for a woman to use any form of cosmetic to beautify herself or any form of jewelry to beautify herself. It's sinful. It's worldly. It's ungodly. I say, I don't have a problem with it. Whatever works. You know, I mean, for all of us. But people will divide and judge over that issue. Another issue would be uh, speaking in tongues. It's an issue. It's worth talking about. But it's not anything to divide over. Yet some will divide over it. Make it the issue, the essential. Smoking, taking of alcohol. Though these are issues, I don't think we'll separate a person from God for eternity. They're not the essentials of Christianity. Music is something that has divided people. God doesn't like those drums. <laughs> Ain't no drums in heaven. <laughs> and people will argue and fight and yell and divide, unfortunately, over some of these issues. The sad part is that 
Like the weak mentioned here, they will look down their noses and assume some sort of spiritual arrogance because they refrain from a practice or engage in a practice. It's also dangerous, and this is really where the application of chapter 14 belongs, is those of us who may have a wider view of Christian liberty, the danger is we can judge those who have a narrow view when we are to receive them. That's really the main point. And one of the old aphorisms of the Reformation is this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, but in all things, charity. And I think that's a good balance. Well, that's the problem, and I had to give you that background to understand the principle mentioned in verse 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Receive them into the fellowship of believers. Let them fellowship with you, but don't do it so that you can argue with them over these non-essentials. It's not like you see somebody go, yeah, I know that person's really hung up on this issue. Let's welcome them into our fellowship so we can hammer them. That's what he's speaking about. The Amplified Bible clarifies this verse. A man who is a weak believer, welcome him into your fellowship, but not to criticize his opinion or pass judgment on his scruples or perplex him with discussions. Now, once again, he's speaking about the weak believer. The weak believer is the legalistic one. And yet it's that legalistic believer that says, I'm the strong one. I'm narrow. You're weak. Paul says, "Uh uh-uh, you are. But because we're stronger, we have to receive you. We're called to receive you, those who are weak in faith. And so it says, receive one, not argue with one, not take out your scriptures and beat them to a pulp with your Bible, your proof texts, not kick him out of your fellowship who is weak in the faith, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. Receive. He may not have the same level of spiritual maturity you have. That person may not agree with you on all the little fine points of theology. But we we need to make a statement to the world. All men shall know you're my disciples by the love that you have one for another, not by dotting your I's and crossing your T on every little point. So receive that person. The sad thing is that so many churches are so exclusive about what they believe. I'm not talking about the essentials now. Understand, I'm talking about non-essentials. They're so exclusive that they have to size you up first. And you have to prove yourself on every little point before they would even remotely consider you to be a believer. I've had numerous run-ins with the Church of Christ. And as we talk and we engage over a conversation, usually sometimes they'll come to a service and then stand in line and they're there simply to tell me that I'm not a Christian. I'm not saved. And I ask them why and for biblical reasons, and it's because I disagree with their viewpoint on baptism, on music and church, etc., etc. Here's the rub. I receive them as believers. I ask them, do you know Christ personally? Has he washed you from your sins? Do you have a personal relationship with him? How do you know? If if I, in the conversation, feel like, oh, this person is genuine. He might be legalistic, but you know what? He's genuine. 
I receive him as a brother, though they may not receive us as brothers or sisters. That's the rub, you see. They'll send and say, you're not a believer. And you're to receive such a one. That's tough, isn't it? A couple came to visit me some time ago, a few years ago. He was from the Church of Christ. She was attending here at the time. Of course, he was disappointed with that. They wanted to get married. They came to me for counsel. And uh, so I said, okay, let, let me ask, just ask you a few questions. You don't consider us to be true believers, do you? With your frame of reference. You got a little nervous? Well, no, I don't. So that means that this girl that you want to marry is not a true believer as well, is she? Now, she perked up when I said this. She looked at him like, well, because they never addressed that before. And he squirmed, and finally he said, well, actually, no. And I said, then let me ask you a question, simply from your reference point. What are you doing as a true believer marrying a true non-believer? That should end this discussion. And so he was struggling with this whole thing. He was weak in the faith. He didn't understand Romans 8.1, Romans 5.1, and some of the great liberating truths of Christianity. There is an uh, interesting article in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram out of Fort Worth, Texas. Article about some firefighters that deliberately set 40 devastating fires in the area. They set the fires themselves. They were caught. And when they were asked about it, this is what they said. We had nothing to do. We just wanted to get red lights flashing and bells clanging. Now, what's the irony in that story? Firefighters shouldn't be the ones that start fires. Firefighters should be putting them out. And I think that's the hint of this section. Christians aren't about starting fires and spreading contention, but we're called to be peacemakers and quelling the contention, resolving the conflict. Well, that's the principle. Receive such a one who is weak in faith, but not to disputes over these doubtful, secondary, non-essential issues. Now, from verse 2 on down, we have the practice of that principle. For one believes he may eat all things. You know what? That would be me. <laughs> but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Again, this has nothing to do with what you feel it does physically for your body. If you're a vegetarian for physical reasons or for health reasons, great. Nothing wrong with that. But the moment you say, I'm more spiritual because I eat this certain kind of diet, ah, that's the problem. But that's the example. We receive one who is weak in the faith. We don't make it a big issue. One believes he can eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Those who are weak in the faith are hung up on dietary restrictions. The Old Testament dietary codes. Worshiping on Saturday versus Sunday. He calls them weak in the faith. They're weak because they, here it is, don't have enough faith to trust Jesus Christ only for their righteousness. Jesus himself isn't just, they can't just rest in that. That no condemnation because I'm in Christ's business. Because they're not quite there yet. They don't have a grasp. And you can understand with the people of the, that background, Judaizers or Jewish people who were saved out of that background, 
and brought into the church would have a problem with these Gentiles who are buying their meat down at the meat market. And they'd be weak. And so at a feast, they wouldn't want to have any meat. They'd say, I'll just take the uh, broccoli. Thank you. They'd only eat the vegetables. But, but right before, I think maybe just a few months before I moved to New Mexico from Huntington Beach, California, I was sitting out in my front yard and um, I was doing some, some activity. I don't know if I was waxing my surfboard or fixing my bicycle or something, but my, I was looking down, and suddenly the sun was blocked, and there was a shadow in front of me, and no joke, I looked up and saw a guy with a beard, long hair, and a white robe standing right in front of me. He'd walked from the beach area and was standing, looking down at me. You know, and, well, what do you think my first thought would be? <laughs> it's here. And then he spoke, and I knew it wasn't him. <laughs> he had a very austere look about his face, that look that would say, I left my halo at home, but I really have one. And he looked down on me and didn't say, do you know Jesus Christ, or can I tell you the good news? He asked me, do you eat meat? I never had anyone just point blank ask me a question like that. Not, hey, how you doing? But, do you eat meat? What? What is this? Is this a commercial or what? And I said, yeah. I, that's not all I eat, but I, yeah. I, and then he went on a tirade of why I shouldn't eat meat. I, I should only eat vegetables. God didn't create, and on and on and on. He was weak in the faith. If he was in the faith at all, he was weak in it. That's all he hammered on. In the New Covenant, under Jesus Christ, there are no ceremonial or dietary restrictions for the believer. Now, if, by, if you can't eat something based on your faith, you have a strong moral conviction based upon whatever, and it's wrong for you to do it, that's okay, but you can't impose that on me or anybody else. That's the idea here. Now, Peter had a hang-up with that. Peter was raised Jewish. Peter was raised with kosher ethics. He ate only certain kinds of meals, prepared certain kinds of ways. He separated uh, the dairy from the meat. He had kept two sets of dishes. It was customary for generations. So that, in Acts chapter 10, when he's down at Joppa at Simon the Tanner's house, and he's at noontime, he's up on the rooftop, and he's delirious because he's hungry, he gets a vision from God. And he sees a sheet let down from heaven with all sorts of unkosher items on it. The kind of animals, the kind of stuff no kosher Jew would ever eat. And God said to him, Peter, get up and eat it. And Peter, being the submissive apostle that he was, said, Not so, Lord. <laughs> and then he prided himself in it. I've never had anything that's unkosher. Common or unclean is the New Testament terminology. Remember what Jesus said to him? Do not call common or unclean what I have cleansed. Now, he was trying to give a lesson to Peter that the Gentiles should be received into the church by faith, and they were not common, they were not unclean, just like that food. If he cleansed it, it should be received. But he had a hang-up with the whole concept. I can't eat that stuff. And Paul understood there will be those people who adhere to it. Now, some of you have that baggage. Some of you were raised Catholic, like I was. 
And when Lent rolls around and it's Friday, you may get a little funny if you go buy McDonald's or Burger King. <laughs> I, don't know, I really want one, but I, I can't. It's Lent. I have, can't eat meat. I have to eat fish. If you want to eat fish, you don't have to. Verse 3, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Let him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. I don't know if you understand how significant this was to Jewish ears. For Jewish people saved out of Judaism, kosher law, brought into the church, seeing their neighbor go down to the Gentile temple to Aphrodite or Dionysus, and buy this meat sacrificed to them and start chomping on it because they thought, and, and for sure, demons were worshipped in those temples. There was demon forces behind all false worship that to eat meat sacrificed in those places is to join with demons. Let me read a portion. In fact, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 for just a moment. Let's get a parallel to this. Broaden our, our understanding of it. First Corinthians chapter eight. Let's pick it up in verse four. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, that there is only there is no other God but one. An idol isn't a God, he is saying it. To God to them, but there's only one God. There aren't many gods. There's only one true God. The idol is just nothing. It's just a piece of wood or metal or stone. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, that is so-called by the pagan world, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and for and we for him, no, oh, let's see, Yet there is one God, Father of all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. However, there is not in every one that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Imagine how cruel it is. Oh, come on, man, don't worry about it. It's just, there's one God, eat it. And so this weak brother's eating his Big Mac with cheese, and the whole time he's going, I'm eating stuff, sacrificed to an idol, this is wrong. You've wounded his conscience. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Now back in verse 3, there's a word to the strong Christian, and there's a word to the weak Christian. And then there's a summary statement to both. First of all, there's a word to the strong in the faith. Let not him, uh, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Then notice there's a word to the weak in the faith. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. And then the summary statement is, for God has received him. They both belong to God. The personal conviction that you have, you don't want to eat meat, great, don't eat meat. But don't impose that conviction on somebody else. If they want to eat it or not eat it, they're not less spiritual, they're not more spiritual. They may have a hang-up with it, and you may not agree with them. But you know what? You're to receive him. You're still to receive him because he's in the Lord, he's in the faith. 
I've noticed something about worldliness. There is true worldliness. There are certain things in the Bible that for a believer in America, a believer in the Soviet Union, a believer in Africa, it's worldly. It's wrong. Clear cut. You don't argue about it. You don't say, well, I feel. No, it's wrong. But then there's other stuff that I would say is geographical worldliness. For instance, in some American groups, Christian groups, the whole idea of any form of alcohol in any way, whether it's for cooking or uh, a glass of wine or whatever, is absolutely taboo. Yet if you were to go to the German church, you'd find after Sunday morning the pastors may convene in a bar over a big brewski and discuss how many people came to Christ. And they would find no dilemma in that at all. And we would go, oh, that's wrong, it's worldly. And while we're pointing our finger at them, we're doing so as we break the speed limit. And don't think that's worldly for some reason. We're very geographic about it. Back in Victorian England, Charles Spurgeon was sort of the big gun, the big preacher. There were several other preachers, not quite as well known as Spurgeon. One of them was named J.W. Packer, not to be confused with J.I. Packer, who's a modern theologian. J.W. Packer, he was a preacher, and uh, they fellowshiped together. They shared pulpits, exchanged churches, until Spurgeon accused Packer of being worldly, ungodly, because Packer went to the theater. The interesting thing is that while he said, you're worldly, you go to the theater, that's worldly entertainment, Spurgeon smoked cigars a lot. In fact, there was an advertisement in London on the billboards about a cigar, the kind Spurgeon smokes. And so he's condemning somebody for going to the theater while he's going, that's worldly, man. <laughs> Which brings up a point. Maybe it's the point of tonight. In these gray areas, how do we discern? What are the tests? There are tests to know what you can and can't do. There is the scope of liberty and the limitations of liberty, Christian liberty. And you don't have to turn to it, but you, you may want to remember 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There are some principles in there, and I'm going to give them to you right now. The first test, let's call it the test of utility. The test of utility. Is it helpful? Is it helpful? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, All things are lawful for me, but not all things will expedite me. It depends on what translation you have, but not all things are beneficial, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, I can do them, but not everything is helpful, beneficial, expeditious. The idea behind that text is as I look through the decisions I have to make, I ask myself this question. Is it a wing or a weight? Will it drive me further in my goal to be like Christ or will it hinder me? That's the first test, the test of utility. Second is the test of authority. Does it enslave me? Does it enslave me? All things are lawful, 1 Corinthians 6. But I will not be brought under the power of any, Paul says. I look at something and think, well, I could do that, but if I engage in this, 
Will that thing become my master? Will I become its slave? I've got to have another cigarette. Just got to have it. Though well, that's not going to keep you out of heaven. I've never seen, I've never gone up to somebody who has a pack of cigarettes and said, Oh, you're a smoker? Well, you want to smoke? It's all, smoke's down there, man. That's, that's, that's where you're going to go. <laughs> but so many are enslaved to it. They don't control it. It controls them. It's a habit. So the test of utility, the test of authority, and finally the test of charity. Does it help other people? What about the rest of the body of Christ? And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things build up or edify other people. What will it do to them? If I do something and they see it, will it stumble them? Will it give them a supposed liberty in an area that they don't have a conviction of? Verse 4. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. And I love this. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Now, in common, ordinary life in those days, it would be ludicrous to walk up to a master who has a slave, a servant, and judge his servant. It was considered taboo. You don't do it. It's none of your business. He's not your slave. He's my slave. Bug off. That's the point here. I mean, just as ludicrous as it would be to say, hey, I noticed your servant didn't really walk straight when he was fetching you that jug of water. You're not my servant. You're Christ's servant. Who am I to judge Christ's servant? And for me to point my finger at you over non-essential issues, God will make you stand if you're a servant. And so he says, who are you to judge now, that sounds a lot like Matthew 7, doesn't it? When Jesus said, judge not, lest ye be judged. Who are you to judge another servant? I need to point this out. I find I need to point this out every single time we talk about judgment because forever I am hearing that scripture abused. Judge not that you be not judged. That does not mean you can't be discerning. That does not mean you can't offer a critique and there are some circles where if you voice a strong opinion or you disagree or you dissent at all or you evaluate for any reason at all, that's what they use. Judge not, lest you be judged. It doesn't mean discernment or that kind of judgment. It's speaking of condemnation. Because Jesus said, judge not, lest ye be judged. And a couple breaths after that, he says, now watch out for false prophets. How can you watch out for false prophets unless you identify them? And that's a judgment. You have to make some discerning, discriminatory judgment. Where would Elijah be if it didn't mean you can't pass any kind of critique? He did it on the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Peter and John did it in Jerusalem. Paul the apostle did it to the Judaizers in the book of Galatians and Colossians. So it's speaking of a censorious condemnation, not a passing of righteous judgment, which, by the way, Jesus said literally verbatim, judge ye a righteous judgment. You're commanded to do so. One of the easiest habits, however, to acquire, unfortunately, is criticizing. And you know what I found? Once you start, it's hard to stop. Once you start going down that path, 
It's kind of fun. Your flesh loves it. Because you know what? There's a lot wrong in this world. There's a lot wrong in this church. There's a lot wrong with those people. And it is endless. And that's one path you don't want to go down because you will be embittered and you will be trapped. We can make snap judgments because we don't have all the information. Not even our servant. You know, it's none of our business. But let's say you're at a restaurant and you see a young couple. You know they're young. You know they're struggling. And they're having a great big meal. You think, what are they doing here? They can't afford this. Well, maybe somebody gave them a gift certificate. None of your business. Or you go to their house and they have a messy kitchen. You go, gosh, boy, she keeps a really messy house. Well, could it be that they're sacrificing the time they would clean it up to spend time with their family? Could be. You don't know. Or maybe it's 11 o'clock, you call, and he's still in bed. You think, man, the guy's a lazy bum. Maybe he's a night person. Maybe he works a job that requires sleep during the day. The Bible tells us in Proverbs, a fool answers a matter before he hears it. And it's a folly and a shame to him to answer something without all the information. That's Proverbs 18, 13. John Stott offers these words. What we are often doing is seeing our own faults in others and judging them vicariously. That way we experience the pleasure of self-righteousness without the pain of penitence. There's only one word the Bible has for that. It's called a hypocrite. So Paul says... It's God's servant. Who are you to judge him? Verse 5. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. The word esteems literally means to give honor to. It's a person who would look at a day of the week, probably thinking in terms of the Jewish believer or the Judaizer who has come into the church and believes you have to keep rules and regulations, and would give honor to the Sabbath, Saturday over Sunday. <gasps> it's Saturday. It's the Sabbath. We have to keep it. He would give honor to it. Paul didn't say, don't do that. He just says, let each be persuaded in his own mind. There was a group in the early church, I mentioned them by name already, Judaizers. I know that's a strange word. It simply means people who claim to be believers in Christ but you had, if you really want to be saved, you have to keep the laws of Moses. You have to be circumcised, have to keep the Sabbath, dietary regulations, etc. Days, feasts, festivals. Christians should keep the festivals of the Jews. And so Paul writes to the Galatians, and he says in Galatians 4, concerning them, to which you desire again to be in bondage. You observe days and months and seasons and years. To the Colossians, in Colossians chapter 2, it was also a problem. Paul says, quote, Let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Yet today there still is the same conflict. It's the conflict between the Sabbatarians, those who worship on the seventh day, versus those who worship on Sunday. In some circles, if you worship on Sunday, you are taking the mark of the beast, they say. And it's ungodly. Now Paul says one man esteems or one person esteems one day above the other. Another esteems every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, all of them alike. There's a difference of opinion. 
Now, I'm often asked, why do Christians meet on Sunday? One came to me and said, why have you changed the Sabbath? I said, I didn't. The church has never changed the Sabbath. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Saturday is still the Sabbath. I didn't change the Sabbath. The church didn't change the Sabbath. Well, Constantine changed the Sabbath. No, he didn't. It's still Saturday. No one changed it. But the reason the early church met on Sunday, they called it the first day of the week rather than the seventh day of the week, is because simply Jesus rose again from the dead. It, to them, celebrated his resurrection and full redemption. And to commemorate the resurrection, the church met on Sunday, the first day of the week. Not always. Paul met on Saturday when he traveled around. He met in the synagogue and preached the gospel to the Jews and the proselytizing God-fearers. But in Corinthians, Paul writes, On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Why? Because they met together on that day. That's why. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. So we have scriptural evidence that the early church met on Sunday. They didn't change the Sabbath. And we have enough records from Tertullian and other church fathers that say the church got together and met because of the resurrection. Now, the scripture never requires the Christian to keep the Sabbath. If you want to, you can. And one of the nice things we have here, somebody comes up to me and says, you, we, you know, Saturday is the only day to worship, not Sunday. I say, well, we have a Saturday service. We've sort of covered our bases. You can come and worship on Saturday. And somebody says, Sunday is the only day. Well, we have three Sunday services. Take your pick. But, and then there's Wednesday nighters. I don't know what to do with, with that. But. <laughs> the scripture never requires Christians to keep the Sabbath. Let me give you some points about that. Number one, the Sabbath was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant, not the sign of the New Covenant. You'll never find a scripture that says keeping the Sabbath was a sign of the New Covenant, but it was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Second, there is never a New Testament directive or commandment to keep the Sabbath. Third, the first time a commandment ever came to keep the Sabbath wasn't until the time of Moses in Exodus chapter 20. It's the first time a commandment to keep the Sabbath as a law. Fourth, the Jerusalem Council, when they received Gentile churches into their fellowship, never made keeping the Sabbath a stipulation. Remember what they said? Don't get involved in fornication, abstain from blood or things sacrificed to idols, you know, be morally pure, don't upset the Jews by this kind of stuff. If you do that, you do well. God bless you. Never said keep the Sabbath. And fifth, Paul never cautioned Christians against breaking the Sabbath. He never said, <gasps> in fact, look at this verse. One man esteems one day, one man esteems every day. I love the way he handles it. Be persuaded in your own mind. Doesn't matter. Now, there's people who believe Sunday is holy. I believe Sunday's holy, but I believe Saturday's holy. And I happen to believe Monday's holy. And I happen to believe also strongly that Tuesday is a holy day. And we can't leave out Wednesday. Here we are worshiping and every day of the week. 
But some say Sunday's the Lord's day. It's the day we, it's holy unto the Lord. Here's the danger. The danger I think Paul is getting at is degenerating Christianity to just keeping days. There's already that thinking in a lot of people. Christmas and Easter, those are the holy days. As long as I keep the holy days. And you can think that about Sunday. Sunday is the holy day to the Lord, which means the rest are mine. I prefer to think every single day belongs to the Lord. I like to get up in the morning and quote that verse. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, when I lived in California, I'd get up early, and I always went to first service Sunday morning, 745 Sunday service. Worshipped, started the day right, then drove down to San Onofre, down to San Clemente, and surfed. And when it was warm weather, I'd surf all day till about 6 o'clock in the evening, dry off, and hit the evening service. So the whole day was a holy day to the Lord. I went to church as unto the Lord. I surfed as unto the Lord. I went to evening Bible study as unto the Lord. To me, it was all, God was a part of all of it. I worshipped him in all of it. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he give thank, gives thanks. He who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat, and he gives thanks. We'll close with that. He is saying simply, it doesn't matter. Why doesn't it matter? Because the motive is exactly the same. The motive is exactly the same. The person says, I have to keep Saturday. Why? Because I want to honor the Lord. Okay, great motivation. Guy says, I got to worship on Sunday, resurrection. Why? Because it's honoring to the Lord. The motive is the same, though the action is different in these non-essentials. So since the aim is exactly the same, somebody wants to honor God and give thanks, great, doesn't matter. Don't play the Holy Spirit in people's lives. They're not your servant. They're God's servant. You're God's servant. But somebody's judging me. So what? That's their problem. Receive them. Love them. Try to nurture them. Try to instruct them. But don't receive them just so you can clobber them. You may have a strong conscience toward a thing. Okay, you have a strong conscience. And it's forged out of certain biblical principles. And here's another person who has strong convictions forged out of what they understand to be biblical principles. Again, I'm only speaking of non-essentials, not essentials. Because of that, it is wrong for you to try to impose your little belief in non-essential issues so that their conscience would be wounded. Because in areas where there's gray areas, we're never to sin against our conscience. And that's also the end of this chapter. You can look ahead and it says, whatever is not of faith is sin. So you, sh you must never deliberately try to violate your conscience or use your activity to violate somebody else's. Even though you may be doctrinally right and the strong Christian because you have all knowledge, tread very carefully and very lovingly and receive them. Dialogue? Sure. You can even debate over certain issues. No problem. But always receive in love. And don't make that the point of contention.